Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. I'm in the studio with David Brown, and we're going to be talking about two big losses to the world of music. We're going to talk about Rick Ocasek, frontman of The Cars, incredibly successful producer, generally interesting dude, which is a really sad loss. And towards the end of the show, we're going to talk about Robert Hunter, who wrote all those brilliant lyrics for The Grateful Dead. And it seems like, as far as the rock canon, we're in a time, quite sadly, when we're going to have to deal with a lot of these losses, and it's a tough thing to get used to. Rick Ocasek was a shock. I actually did one of his last interviews, which I had no idea, of course, that it was any big deal at all. I I talked to him in July or so for my piece about Weezer's Blue Album, and it sucks because it was kind of a shaky cell phone connection. He had been interviewed, I think, too many times about the Blue Album, so he didn't have a ton to say about it that he hadn't said before. You know, I asked him what he was up to right now, and he said, oh, I'm doing a little painting, just kind of hanging out. And I guess he was having heart surgery, right? Is that the... Yeah, he's having some kind of surgery. I'm going to get some updates on that next week. But yeah, and he was 75 years old, which I think that was one of the shockers for a lot of us. And partly because he shaved five years off his age at one point early in the car's career. And so there was some uh, initial confusion as to how old he was. But uh, an old friend of his, who I talked to for a story that's in the works, did confirm that Rick was 75. And Robert Hunter was 78. So you're right. I mean, it's getting to that point now that even though we don't, Robert Hunter and and Rick Ocasek were icons of different generations, but they were actually about the same age. And a lot of that generation is approaching, or they are approaching 80, which is... Kind of a shocking thing. You can shave five years off in the publicity kit, but in the end, you can't really <laughs> shave the five years off, unfortunately. <laughs> but it did its magic. But Rick was an amazing guy. And uh, I will say, before we get into his story, I'll, I'll just tell my little story, which I am very thankful that I was able to thank him for this in my phone call. I reminded him that in, I think, 1998, I was outside the Club Tramps, where I was covering a show by the band Guided by Voices for the website SonicNet, which I was running for at the time, and I was doing this thing that we did where we'd interview fans. We'd ask fans what they thought of the show, because it wasn't a review, we were reporting on the show. And as I was interviewing fans, Rick comes out of the club. And the great thing about Rick is you couldn't miss him. I mean, there he was looking exactly like in the You Might Think video. My eyes popped out of my head, and I went over and, you know, I'm holding a notebook at possibly 1.30 in the morning because it was like a late show. 1.30 in the morning outside Tramps on a sidewalk in Manhattan and some rando with a notebook approaches him and is just like, hey Rick, what do you know? What you think of the show? And instead of being like, fuck off, he started talking to me. He gave me an interview on the spot Wow. and you know, he told me the show was great and somehow we got onto the fact that he had actually just signed on to produce the next Gotta By Voices album. And so he gave a random guy he met on the sidewalk a scoop about his next production job and at the time that seemed like a big deal because for all we knew, maybe that would have been the album that Gotta By voices would that would have propelled them into the pop mainstream (laughs) it was not the case although there's a couple interesting songs on the album that he gave in a very generous manner so i think it's revealing of a couple things about him which is one that he was legendarily accessible like that in talking to people about him and they would have stories just you know walking down the street with him you know recording he loved working at electric lady studios on 8th street here in new york city in the village which is uh, of course the place where hendrix put up the money for and uh there was a grace papaya at the time hot dog stand right across the street and he and his engineer would often just pop over there and stand in line and get their hot dogs. And of course, like you said, Brian, I mean, everybody 
knew who that was. They would often ask the engineer if he was Rick's son, actually. <laughs> it's interesting. <laughs> but uh, but Rick was always, he said he would sign autographs. He would talk with people. He did tell this guy that he wore sunglasses all the time so he could check out the people and they couldn't see his eyes. But that story is also really interesting of a point in Rick's career, which lasted from the early 90s all the way into the 2000s, where he basically remade his career as a producer and was making solo albums. But The Cars, by 1998, that was 10 years after they broke up and he'd left that behind and he more or less did except for a little reunion but he pretty much had left that behind kind of walked away from that and just loved producing bands not just you know Weezer and No Doubt and pop bands but Guided by Voices The Bad Brains Suicide I mean it's a really interesting list of bands like he had a list capital so to speak from his success and he kind of used it in that way I think he must have lived in the West Village I know he had a brownstone it was uh, near Gramercy Park. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So he had a very easy kind of commute to the, what a great life. I love when rock stars kind of figure it out. And the ones who moved to Hawaii for me, those ones, they really figured it out. But he also figured out, it's like, I can live in this brownstone on Gramercy with my beautiful wife and then kind of like maybe walk to Electric Lady. That's what he did. Produce yeah. an album and that's my life. And then he goes to this restaurant at night and instead of in a Four Seasons Hotel in Boise or whatever, he had this life. Yeah, he apparently had no interest in touring at that point. He had a studio in the basement of his brownstone as well. He loved to work at Electric Lady, which was a probably, I don't know, 10, 15 minute walk away. He and his wife Polina were raising two kids. Yeah, he didn't have to worry about jumping on airplanes or playing, you know, oldies cruise ship shows with the cars or whatever would have happened to them after the hits were over. He told someone back then who told me that he did make one of these solo records in the 90s. And I think the label was sort of pressuring him to tour. And he was like, I don't want to do that. I'm at a great point in my life. That whole thing that messed up one of my previous marriages going on the road. Why why do I want to do that again? You know, kind of attitude. And uh, he had like sort of figured out how to use his success and his fame to his advantage and not let it kind of wreck him. So let's take a step back and tell his story from the beginning. You are reporting a piece for Rolling Stone about his life, and we've all read up a little bit. There's a wonderful uh, John Perella story early on about the cars in Rolling Stone, and it's interesting to see how many musical incarnations he went through before the cars. He had his own version of the kind of Billy Joel Springsteen model, Mellencamp model of playing in bar bands and paying your dues that way. He and I think Benjamin Orr were kind of a duo early on, right? In various incarnations, they met really early and had this really rough musician's life of going from place to place without much success, right? Right. They met in Ohio. Rick was raised in Maryland and his family moved to Ohio and that's where Ben Orr was from. And I think they kicked around a bit there and a few bands and so forth. I had a band called Nirvana ID, which was really interesting. <laughs> it's like the late 60s. You know, I don't think the band ever recorded or anything. And then Rick ended up in the Boston area and he answered an ad from a, another Midwestern musician named Jim Goodkind, who I spoke with. He wanted to audition a singer for a covers band <laughs> in the Boston area and Rick called him up and the guy said, actually, Rick wasn't that impressive in that way, but then doing the audition, Rick pulled out a guitar and played some of his own songs. And this guy was like, oh... That's what this guy said. He said he had a very soft, lulling kind of voice, very pretty voice, and sort of these acoustic songs. And again, not Cars-like at all. And that led to the two of them forming a group and getting Ben Orr back, uh, or getting him from Ohio to Boston. And they formed this group called Milkwood, which was in 1972, which was a very 1972 band. Yeah, whatever (laughs) you, the listener, are currently imagining Milkwood, the early Cars band, to sound like, it doesn't sound like that. I guarantee you. I think we can play a little bit of Milkwood right now. I don't know if you're ready for it, but let's play some milkwood. Talk about the trees, the sand dunes, and the 
I mean, to be honest, for the genre it's attempting to be, it's pretty good. It actually was not bad. Rick was also a big fan back then, people like Nick Drake and the Fairport Convention, Incredible String Band, which is interesting too, because we're talking the early 70s. The only people who knew about Nick Drake in the early 70s were people who bought import albums or read the rock press, or it wasn't like Nick Drake post a Volkswagen commercial. You really had to know your music. So yeah, they had this one group, Milkwood, very CSN Eagles influenced, and made one record and it sort of flopped and the group kind of fell apart after. Afterwards, and then eventually Ben and Rick started playing in duos, and Rick was doing some solo acoustic things. They had various other bands, including one called Captain Swing, which would also include Elliot Easton and being the Cars, which was described to me as, uh, again, very different from the Cars. There were a lot of Steely Dan comparisons I'm hearing. Huh. So it was almost like they had, uh, that they had their folksmen to Spinal Tap period <laughs> or something, you know. But they went through all these kind of incarnations based on, and think about it, like in 1972, if you wanted a band, you had to kind of be a Crosby, Stills, and Nash kind of band. And in 1975, that Steely Dan sound was kind of in. So there was an interesting kind of, uh, maybe a finger to the wind aspect to it at all. Basically, Cabin Swing came to New York to do a showcase for some big rock managers. And first of all, from what I heard, they all look completely different. If you go online, you can see pictures of, for example, Rick in the band Milkwood. He had a mustache. Not like anything you'd expect. He had not perfected his rock and roll he look. Had not, yeah, that time. He did not have glasses. He, nothing. Yeah, if you look a certain way, it's easy if you're a, a super handsome dude, you just grow your long hair and you're good and you can look like a rock star. If you have an idiosyncratic look and you want to be a rock star, you kind of have to figure out your thing. And he hadn't figured out his <laughs> yeah. thing. Yeah, and so basically, I think Captain Swing were roundly uh, kind of criticized by a lot of managers for basically not having their act together visually or musically and, and Rick sort of <laughs> Rick sort of commandeered it at that point they got rid of a couple of members that's when they got Greg Hawks of the cars the keyboard players who had met Rick during the Milkwood days actually so and they became the cars uh, David Robinson the drummer named them they refined their look apparently in Captain Swing they all look like they're from different bands so, you know long hair and some of them had long hair some of them had bell bottoms jeans, you know, everybody looked different. And uh, the whole car's aesthetic, which was largely attributed to David Robinson, the drummer as well. And uh, they made a demo, which was then actually played on Boston radio. But just the original version of Just What I Needed got on the radio all over the place in Boston before they even had a record deal. And it was, you know, perfect timing, 76, 77. We were just on the verge, you know, punk was sort of starting. The early days of New Wave, was, all that stuff was in the air. And and those songs that Rick was writing were so perfect for that, to be adapted to that kind of format. And I think we're trying to get that demo up of just what I needed, which it's one of those demos that make it clear that this was a band that had their shit figured out before they ever had a producer. It sounds very much just... It's the perfect example. It just needed a little tightening to get to the uh, professional version because I was listening to this demo the other week. Do we have that? Let's hear that. I don't just like a millisecond off from the finished version, you know? And actually, it reminds me of something that Rick told me when we were talking about Weezer. And we were talking about the fact that he, and sorry to jump around, but he told me about the fact that they used a click track on the Blue Album, which means you're in perfect time. Whereas on Pinkerton, they threw out the click track, and that's why they literally sound like an entirely different band. Much more wild and explosive on the good side, but also much less controlled, which made them sound much less radio friendly. And it's startling how much difference just taking that one thing out can make. And Rick said, well, sometimes good time, in other words, being in perfect time with your instruments, can be a hook in itself. And I thought that was a 
perfect explanation for the intro of Just What I Needed, which wasn't quite, you know, in that demo version, it's just, again, like a millisecond not as tight as the recorded version, but that chunky dun-dun-dun-dun is so perfect and so modern when you heard it on the radio. Did that strike you? I mean, again, jumping ahead a little bit, but when you first heard the cars, you heard them a little earlier. I was introduced to them by Just What I Needed on MTV, but when you first heard them, did they strike you as sort of a, like, even though it's still the 70s, here's the first band of the 80s? Because that's always how I always imagine them. Yeah, very much so. I mean, you have to also put it in the context of what else we were hearing at the time, which is like the first two Elvis Costello records and the first two Clash albums. And the Cars, it was a much tighter produced slick product, quote unquote, in that way than any of that stuff. And yet it had the same kind of energy, which was really interesting. It was, I think, an early sign of like, oh, this new sound, this new sensibility music could be mainstreamed and so adapted, yeah, you know, could, could, could kind of mainlined into the mainstream that you could take that and, and if you produce it just a little bit more, it can be the new pop. And that was really kind of striking at the time. That first album is Elliot Easton said of the album, it could be the car's greatest hits. It's one of those debut albums that is like a greatest hits album. It's perfect. And I think it shows if it doesn't feel like a debut, it's because of what we just talked about. They had built over years a craft and had discarded so many versions of themselves. They were ready to adhere to this tight concept of a band. Yeah. And I think all those things that Rick had gone through personally, he adapted in every way. Like by the time that the cars got a record deal, he'd been through a bad record deal and, you know, maybe not such a great manager. And so he did Demanded like control over the publishing and control over who would produce the album. They got Roy Thomas Baker, which was a huge thing as a Queens producer at the time to work with this new band. And so all those stumbles that he'd come across early on actually kind of paid off. And you also have to remember that by the time that first Cars record came out, he was like 35, which was, you know, that's not old, but at that time, you can almost understand why <laughs> he wanted to shave a few years off his age on his, his public image because that he would have been considered, you know, someone, one of his friends compared it to be like, if you were suddenly like a, a tennis pro at 35 would just be considered it's, odd. It's unfortunately in rock or in music, it's old to have a debut album. It's in no way old on the earth, but to have a debut album as a rock star who wants to be in the mainstream, it's old. And, you know, that's why he shaved it off. But I am always fascinated by the Roy Thomas Baker factor because you have this guy from a maximalist band. He had produced these Queen albums that were full of stuff. And here's this band, The Cars, who were quite minimalist. And the way that worked together is really interesting. Sometimes it's like there's little moments of big stacked background vocals on the first Cars album that are kind of Queen-esque, but they come by so fast and so compactly that you don't think of it that way unless you really pay attention. So I think it was a really good pairing, actually. Fascinating. It was. And like Queen, the sound was really dense and uh, tightly packed sound that I think that both bands had in common. You can almost see why Baker would have been kind of attracted to working with both. These weren't like wild and woolly unleashed rock bands. They were making pop records on a bigger scale. I think that's the thing that kind of combines both bands, unites both bands. Rick Ocasek, he saw the cars in a very specific way. We were talking about this on the ride over. He saw them as a rock band doing pop songs, but saw them as kind of a, in a pre-Gaga way, as sort of pop art in a Warholian sense. They were kind of making pop in quotes in his mind, even if the rest of the band might have thought they were just making pop without the quotes. In his mind, it was pop in quotes, which is really interesting. What did you learn about that kind of mindset? Well, it's funny. I've spoken now with uh, Elliot Easton and Greg Hawks for my story, and, and Elliot kind of brought up the same idea that I said, well, each of you brought something to the table 
relatable, obviously, as a band, each as musicians. I mean, Greg Hawk's keyboard hooks are like the hooks of the songs almost. And it's not all Rick. Rick wrote most of the songs. And I said, well, you know, what else did he bring? And he said, well, it was like ironic pop songs. Beale did credit the whole sensibility of that to Rick. And I'm not sure yeah, if everyone else was totally as uh, plugged into that concept as Rick loved and just kind of loved playing these tunes and arranging them. What's the classic sort of Pete Townsend setup where, as he would describe it, like the caveman and the rest of the band had no idea what he was doing, <laughs> but, you know, they were good at rocking. It's not exactly the case, but it's not like there isn't precedent for this setup yet. Right, exactly. <laughs> That's a good analogy for sure. And I think even though Rick maybe didn't have like Townsend-like ambitions for concept albums and whatnot, you can see how the way he kind of toyed around with their sound, and he made it artier with every record. By the time you get to the third record, Panorama, the tunes are much more kind of stripped down. They're kind of much more electronic. They're a little chillier. They're not as gleefully, even if ironically, gleefully poppy as the first stuff. He began to push it even pretty early on. And I think probably his instincts sometimes led him too far away from the pop stuff that people wanted. In fact, with Panorama, critics kind of turned against the band right at that time. Yeah, it was very much the case where they were pretty much a critics band in the beginning. And I think it's interesting that critics would turn against them in retrospect because you'd think that them making kind of artier, more interesting oddball records would be a thing kind of things critics would have loved at the time and that they weren't just turning into a, a hit kind of machine. So I always found that a little strange, even though I agreed with it that Panorama was not as good as the first album or the second album, Candio, which is also really terrific. I found that at the time interesting because they, they were doing, he and they were doing things that you would think critics would have applauded and not just turning into a formula pop band. But I guess the formula was so good the first time around that people wanted more of it, even critics. Yes, and I think that's a great point. And I think if you look at some of the early reviews of the first album, people will say that it falls short when they get experimental. I think fairly or not, the sense was what they were actually good at was the pop stuff and not so much the experimental stuff. Whereas Rick's heart... So Rick was a huge Lou Reed fan, as you can tell. He loved the band Suicide, which he then produced. He produced, and not only did he end up producing some Suicide records, he actually had them open for the Cars during various shows, like in 79 up through 81. And, you know, they were talking about one of the most intense, maybe bands of all time. I mean, you know, two-man group, uh, Alan Vega, this lead singer who had this kind of uh, wild baritone, and Martin Rev was just this intense synthesizer player, and they would do this, really, I mean, it's almost a salt of music. And this was the group that Rick chose to open for the cars. And after one of those shows, like somebody threw something in the stage and Martin Rev saw it, found a, like a tomahawk type thing in the drums. Like somebody actually in the, uh, in the cars fan was so upset that they <laughs> hurled a weapon toward the stage to protest it. But Rick loved that. There was that side of him that loved, the, like you said, like that Lou Reed, that sort of underground music side of him that really came to a fore once he kind of was free of the cars. But you could see hints of his future even when he was with the cars during the first day. What really floated his boat? He was a great, sly, surreal, sometimes lyricist. And a line that he pointed out is like, so look at the chorus of Just What I Needed. And he says, I guess you're just what I needed. I needed someone to bleed. And it's like, we all just kind of blow past that. And he said that he loves that, that people were like pumping their fists in the air and having no idea what they were singing. But place the cars in the context of New Wave. Where do they fit in all that? I think where they fit in was, like I said, I think they were right from the start. They were a lot more radio friendly. They were almost like these ambassadors kind of unwittingly for the music because those records did get on the radio. I mean, some Elvis Costello did in Train in Vain by The Clash and... There were a few things here or there, but those groups weren't selling out arenas 
right away. And I think their acceptance, the mass acceptance by just your average pop fan of the cars was a huge symbolic kind of victory at the time, I think, for the music. It wasn't just this thing that critics liked and all the critics back then loved Nick Lowe, but he didn't really sell that many records back then. He had one hit, Cruel to Be Kind or something, but the cars had hit after hit and they kind of were like rock stars. I mean, they dressed like rock stars, had like outfits, you know? So he wore a wig is something you discovered. He did, yes. And uh, I'm still exploring the roots of that. No pun intended there whatsoever, yeah. but I mean, he did suffer from a condition where he did- Alopecia of some sort, yeah. Yeah, where he did lose his hair periodically, I believe. And so, yes, he would wear a wig. I think probably all the way up you know, through the end. That was not an age thing. It was an actual physical condition situation. So the car's career until the reunion went up to 1987. What's your impression of why they broke up? I think from what people have told me, including some of the former members, there was a lot of tension between Rick and uh, Ben Orr, who was the bass player and also... Sometimes vocal. Sometimes lead singer, sang lead on Drive and a bunch of the other hits as well. And uh, I guess some of that tension dates back to that early group they were in, Milkwood. And <laughs> I think Ben loved being, what I've heard, he, he loved kind of the rock star life, you know, the touring life, the, uh, the whole thing, maybe a little bit more than Rick did. As we talked about earlier, there's that certain mechanical approach to car sounds. And I mean that in a good way. They were very tight. And I think he loved that. And by the way, one of the most perfectly named bands of all time, as far as the name matching the sound, <laughs> right, right? right? Incredible. Right. But yes, please right, go on. Yeah. Yeah. He liked that control over the sound. And you don't get that on stage. This is one of his friends said. He, like, he, liked, yes. he became a studio rat later because you could be in a studio and you knew exactly how it would sound and you had control over it and you could shape it. You're on stage. You're at the whim of sound systems. You know, audience noise, out of tune instruments, whatever you had to deal with, especially in the somewhat primitive days of the 70s and early 80s when you're touring. So I think a lot of those things kind of drove him crazy. Uh, you know, his first marriage, or sorry, his second marriage, he was married three times, but his second marriage ended maybe as a result of his touring life and being away from family. And so there were all those things combined. Um, and also, apparently, the experience with the last Cars album was not great. You know, they had a major second win with Heartbeat City, which you kind of forget that the Cars had a huge first album. And then each of the records after that had a hit here or there, like Shake It Up, which Rick was embarrassed by, by the way, apparently, and uh, let's go. But then each record sold a little bit less, and the bloom was a little bit off the rose. And then they hook up with Mutt Lang, a major pop rock producer who does Heartbeat City in 84. And like that record is huge. We have the Rick is the star, even of the, you might think, video. It wins all kinds of MTV awards and sells millions of records. And suddenly they are like at the total top of the heap again. It's such a fascinating thing. It's a rare case where I can come into the arc of one of these older bands in real time. In 1985, I was probably just first starting to watch MTV as a really little kid. And that was the first I'd ever heard of this band. And it was like a new band for me there in 1985. And I'm sure I speak for millions. Like I would say besides Thriller or, any, or Beat It, I would say of all the videos of the 80s, that's the one that sticks in my head the most. Hmm. That and maybe Van Halen's Jump and a mm -hmm. few other ones. But I mean- Sledgehammer that, maybe? So, yeah, but I didn't see that one as much. Okay. You might think was on all the time. Let's hear that song for a second. And what's fascinating is the sound didn't really change from the first album. It's just a little beefed up. 
you know, you can hear, by the way, even in a little bit, there's the Buddy Holly hiccup in his voice. <laughs> Actually, he kind of answered the question of like, what would Buddy Holly sound like mixed with Lou Reed? You that's know, a, that's, that's a great, that's, that's a great, that's, that's the, a great point. That, that is totally great perception. That's, yeah. that's where you get that. And then the other crazy thing about that album is that Rick wrote this song dry, even though he didn't sing it, but it is a very un-Rick song in its emotion. You know, it's the kind of thing where you want to look it up and be like, did he really write that? I mean, he didn't sing it, but he really did. And let's hear that because it shows that another hidden side of him. And in that case, they did kind of push their sound further into the 80s, for sure, in addition to the vocals. It feels more flock of seagulls than anything that they had done previously. But also, it's one of those situations where it also spelled the end of the band, because from what I've heard, making that record was quite the ordeal. It took a really long time. Mutt Lang is very demanding. Yeah, I was going to say, what, a Mutt Lang record right, right. was an ordeal? It <laughs> a took shocker. a lot of time? Yeah. But, you know, it was the first time they'd really encountered something to that extent. I mean, uh, one of the guys said, you know, they started the record in England. They, I think recorded in England, and he, he brought, like, it was the spring, and he just brought, like, a light jacket. And didn't he didn't leave England until, like, nine months <laughs> later, and he didn't have it to buy a new coat because it was cold. I mean, they appreciate it in terms of the success of it. But, you know, Rick later told someone, like, don't ever do that. Don't ever spend that much time on a record. And so they decided to prove the next one door to door themselves. By that point, they were big rock stars. They were traveling separately on like buses and planes and that sort of thing was settling in and they produced the records themselves and it, it wasn't as successful. A hitless record basically mm-hmm. that didn't even go platinum. And that's the writing on the wall. When you ask why a band broke up and then you see that the final record didn't go platinum, <laughs> that, that tends to kind After of After selling like whatever it was, five million copies of Heartbeat City or maybe even more, they weren't even selling out shows on that tour. It was a, a really really dramatic drop in popularity. It's it's a, really kind of striking given how big Heartbeat City was. I mean, it was three or four years later, which can be a lifetime, but it's like things just like turned. And I'm not sure what they turned to in 1987. It wasn't that dramatic. It may REM, maybe. But I, I, but, you no, know, I, I would I say know. the gulf between 84 and 87 was pretty big, actually. I think that was a gulf that was challenging for people. That was a long time. So It, it was. And we were getting more into the Mellencamp and Bruce <laughs> kind of stuff. Bruce they, in the 80s, they, which they, is another, interesting. Another trouble sign in that record is that Orr wrote like half the record, which right. was the most he had ever written before. And again, when you ask why a band broke up and then all of a sudden you see their final album didn't go platinum and had a different songwriter, it's like, I don't know, but maybe Orr's like, I just sang our biggest hit, Drive. I can write songs too, perhaps. The same thing happened to Creedence Clearwater Revival. And by the time they got to their last record, the bass player and drummer were like, well, why can't we write songs, John? You know, why is it all just you? And so you look at the credits of Mardi Gras, which is the last Creedence Clearwater Water Revival album. And yeah, Fugitive only wrote a couple songs, and the other songs were written and sung by the rhythm section guys, and they just weren't as good. And boom, then the group breaks up. So maybe it wasn't quite as widespread in the cars, but you know, I think all those factors combined, and you know, Rick especially combining some tension in the band, it was just, uh, it, you know, it was only 10 years after the first album. It's just kind of, when you look back at it, it's like, but well, that was actually kind of. A short run, in a way. He was making soul records the whole time. Mm-hmm. His second soul record came out right before Door to Door. So there was a lot of writing on the wall. He then started doing, you know, he produced another suicide record in 88. His solo records just never connected. Occasionally they would be pretty good. Occasionally they would get good reviews. But for some reason, it's one of those guys who possibly had he called certain things the cars, maybe they would have been hits. Who knows? Just somehow the soul records just never did very much. I don't think he lost the knack for writing pop songs, but his voice was, you know, Ben Orr's voice was a little more radio friendly and that part of it. And also I think the artier side came out. I mean, he had spoken word 
bits on his albums and songs that were not quite as synthy as Suicide, but they were a little more subterranean in their sound, I would say. And, you know, they weren't really aiming, you know, I think one of the guys in the band thought that uh, his second record, This Side of Paradise, which was 86, was actually the real kind of follow-up to Heartbeat City. It's a bit more of a commercial record than Door to Door. But yeah, for the most part, you know, you guys got the impression that he would sort of dutifully promote his solo records with an interview or two, but he would never really tour behind them. And, you know, he'd begrudgingly make a video. It's almost like his heart wasn't really into his own career or something, or his own music, I should say, at that point. Maybe it was, but it certainly, it seemed like he got as much satisfaction out of producing bands. I mean, Weezer was like his cars or something in some way, even though the way he kind of oversaw that record. Yeah, we should, in the remaining Rick Ocasek moments, we should talk briefly about his production career again, which, yeah, in, in 94, you know, basically there was, it was, it was actually, I guess, 93 when they actually recorded this band, Weezer, who had been signed as a fairly low priority to Geffen, were looking for a producer. Well, actually, they wanted to produce it themselves, but the label said no way. And so their A&R guy, Todd Sullivan, was trying to find an acceptable producer for them. And one possibility was the production team behind the uh, debut Radiohead album. That would have been an interesting combination. The other possibility happened to be Rick Ocasek. And as it happened, Rivers Cuomo was listening to the car's greatest hits. So he kind of loved the idea. And Rick, when he first heard that album, he told me he thought it was like a metal band when he first heard the demos because it was just like loud, roaring guitars, recorded so much shit, and he was like, this is a really poppy metal band. I like this. And then he went to see them and was really charmed by and probably responded to their nerdiness and definitely had a big influence on that album. I think some people might misunderstood. They might think that he put the synth on Buddy Holly or something like that. That's not true at all. It was in the demos. But he, by both of our reporting, tightened it up. And, you know, it was a massive, massive success. And that established him as someone who could produce big albums, even if the truth is like a lot of the albums he produced produced afterwards did not become as big as Weezer. In fact, something like the Green Album was his other huge success, another Weezer album. So he and Weezer actually were really were an underrated thing as a team. That really worked. But you know, what do you think as you have have just written, Brian, sort of great feature about the early days of Weezer. What did he bring to them? What was that? I think he had a tightness and focus even that he seem to not be able to bring to his own solo albums. Rivers likes to like think in a lot of different directions, and I think Rick would put them in one direction. Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. I'm in the studio with David Brown. We wanted to talk a bit before we had to leave about the great Robert Hunter, lyricist for The Grateful Dead, who also passed away recently. And David did an incredible two-part interview with Robert Hunter just recently in 2015, and he had a hell of a life story. He was the first Grateful Dead associate to drop LSD because he was in the government study, right? Right, the Stanford study where they would pay you like twenty bucks or something to like to take LSD so they could monitor your, you know, how it impacted on you. Yeah, he was sort of the one of the people who have kind of spread the word in their community back then. He also dabbled a little bit in Scientology, which was kind of wild. Who among you know, us? He tried to get Jerry into it, but <laughs> said Jerry didn't like the whole like staring each other in the face kind of <laughs> bars. <laughs> Jerry's like, I'll stick with Oreos and heroin. Those will get me through. But I have to just read his answer to you when you said, let's talk about how you became the dead's primary lyricist in 1967. I was pretty deeply into speed and meth and came close to messing myself up. The scene I was in, I had to get out of that scene entirely because as long as I was around, I'd be tempted. So I went off to New Mexico. And while I was there, I'd been writing some songs. I'd written St. Stephen and China Cat Sunflower, and I sent those and Alligator off to Jerry, and he uncharacteristically wrote back. 
He said they were going to use the songs, and why didn't I come out and be their lyricist? Which I did, which is just incredible. And then there's this, the story of how they were rehearsing what became Dark Star, and Robert just started like writing the lyrics as they were playing. They were doing like a kind of a sound check rehearsal for this outdoor show just north of San Francisco. And yeah, he was just like on a bench outside the venue and just listening to them do the you know, early right kind of dabble with this song. And he just, yeah, just wrote lyrics out to it. And it was just like as they were playing. And that was the first time he kind of wrote a song with them once he relocated back to San Francisco and he became their in-house lyricist. And it was even like on staff in a way. He had one of those rare positions, you know, in music at Bernie Taupin we were talking about. It was maybe one of the only people. In fact, uh, when I interviewed uh, Robert back then, I said, yeah, who else besides you? And he said he could only think of one other, which was Bernie Taupin, which is a kind of separate lyricist for a band. In rock history, there was a guy in Procol Harum who also did that, but <laughs> there weren't too many others. So he was sort of like, to the outside world, he was this invisible member of the band, but he was the voice of the band in so many ways. And he wasn't super collaborative with Jerry. It was more like he was writing these brilliant lyrics and Jerry would just pick some of them. It really sounds like in many cases, it's fascinating because he was in his own way an auteur of the band. I love he said to you, Casey Jones didn't start out as a song. It popped into his mind driving that train high on cocaine. Casey Jones, you better watch your speed. And he wrote it down somewhere and he came back to it. He was like, hey, that could be a, a pretty good song. He would just pump out these lyrics and just send them to the point where like, he said he drove Jerry a little crazy. Jerry like, another batch of lyrics? I got to write more music? <laughs> and Hunter was doing that right up until just recently when he would collaborate with people like Bruce Hornsby and, Bob and, Dylan. and Dylan and country singer Jim Lauderdale and many others. He would just, you know, sometimes have these things ready to go and they would say, well, I have some music. You have anything? Or he would just send it. He wrote a couple of new songs with Bob Weir and Phil Lesh when they played in Further. And he said they just, one day got a big envelope in the mail with a bunch of Hunter lyrics. <laughs> yeah. what, what a fantastic thing. And it must be said, when Bob Dylan is getting you to help him write lyrics, that says a hell of a lot about what a good lyricist you are. And he was amazing. And what Dylan said about him is that he saw him as a kindred spirit and that he writes lyrics that aren't like what passed for song lyrics these days. He was plugged into something deeper and it was a real tree and he was brilliant and uh, and rest in peace. And he has all the notebooks with his original songs are, in his, are somewhere yeah. out there. So, somewhere, so, somewhere. So we've been talking about the music of Rick Ocasek and the work of Robert Hunter. And this has been today's Rolling Stone Music Now. It went very fast. I'm Brian Hyatt and I was here here with David Brown, and we'll be back next week here on SiriusXM's Volume Channel 106. In the meantime, we are a podcast. Download us as a podcast. Subscribe to us as a podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Maybe leave us a nice review on iTunes. We always appreciate that. In the meantime, as always, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did, and they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was a three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord. We get it. They have chemistry. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.